You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 34. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, son, hey, son. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Yes, oh, very nice. Who was missing? I don't know. <laughs> no one. Good to be back together. Yeah. It's been a week. Uh, no, but I remember Anders was missing from the interview. Oh, yes. Yes, I was missing from the interview. Sorry about that, but I was I was in Italy with a shitty internet connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was it was terrible. I, I just couldn't connect really so sorry about that never mind we had a lovely time with penny lane uh for those who hasn't haven't listened to that episode please download it and listen and it was very educational and interesting and i liked it and also watch watch the documentary called nuts yes please do it's very good yeah definitely it was a very good interview the only thing i didn't like about it is that i wasn't part of it mm. but yeah it's very sad yeah we, we would like not to have that very often okay And we are in three different countries again. We are. Absolutely, yes. We won't tell you which, though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, hint, hint. Uh, I was at a Hungarian radio channel studio today. (laughs) That's pretty exciting, Andres. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Tell us more about this. Yeah, we, we, we talked about hoaxes. Yeah, it was good fun. Every first Monday of a month, we have this segment with uh, with uh, one of the the best known radio hosts at this uh, radio channel called Club Radio. It's been going on for a couple of years that we have this segment with him and uh, we talk about different topics, we discuss different topics. Sometimes uh, we have some experts coming on and and talk about vaccination or or GMOs or stuff like that. Today it was hoaxes and it was pretty lighthearted. I really liked it. Uh we had good fun and I hope it was also educational, but uh that's not for me to tell. Will you will you save the link somewhere so that the, the listeners who do speak Hungarian can listen to it later on? Yeah, 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 yeah. We we always have it uh on our archives. Uh we have we have our own podcasts so to say uh it's it's not really the same kind of podcast that we we are doing with ESP it's uh it's it's only a collection of our radio appearances so mm-hmm. it's like a, so when you say we you mean the Hungarian Skeptics. the Hungarian Skeptic Society yeah yeah oh, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah very yeah. good very yeah. nice yeah yeah i really enjoyed it excellent yeah what have you been up to Well, I've been just uh, enjoying the Swedish summer, trying to uh, to uh, tend the grill while the the rain was pouring down. It was always <laughs> interesting, but <laughs> un- oh, it sounds very similar to English summer. Yes. Well, f- fortunately or unfortunately, we have a lot of practice, so it went very well. Mm. <laughs> um, I went for a wonderful bike ride on Saturday around London. They've closed off all the roads, and so there were no cars and. And it's just the whole... Just for you? The whole London was invaded by cyclists. It was about 100,000 other people and me. Oh, wow. Um, And it was a lot of fun because um, you never see a city from this perspective when you're on the road and there's no cars and you just can ride around as many times as as you want. And uh, we've done three laps with my husband 
um, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. So mm. it's called Prudential Ride. It happens every year, actually, same time. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Nice, yeah. nice photos on Facebook. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So we got into cycling since we moved to London because, um, well, you know what? It's ch- cheaper and much quicker to get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. London is a great place. But you know what? Um, Pontus, what, what's, mm-hmm. what's the normal temperature of this time of the year in, in Malmö? Uh, it's everything between 12 and 30. You wow. never know. You cannot okay. depend on it. So at the moment, we're about well, pretty pleasant uh, 2022, something like that. Uh, a couple, uh, two weeks ago, we had 30. So it's, oh. uh, you, you never know. Yeah, we've had yeah, the last couple of days. We've had thirty, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five here in Hungary. Mm. It's terrible. That's a bit on the high side, yeah. yeah. Oh no, it's 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 way over the high side. It's it's unbearable, and uh, at least for me, my temperature optimum is between five degrees and twenty-five degrees Celsius. And anything above twenty-five is too hot for me. Mm. Well. Depends on the how close you are to uh, to uh, to a drink. I think. Well, yeah. I like that. <laughs> how close you are to a drink, <laughs> and how cold the drink is. It's an interesting approach. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think I approve. It's the only approach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, shall we start the show? <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Uh, but first, I'd like to thank. Everyone, we, we've got a few emails uh, praising the show and uh, I'd really like to, to to thank you guys for contacting us and letting us know how much you like the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we do appreciate any feedback, so that's yeah. really good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very so encouraging, yeah. It is, it is. And keep them coming, please. <laughs> so whoever feels like uh, letting us know about their thoughts regarding the show... Uh, let it be positive or some kind of criticism. Uh, we are all open for that, and uh, we really appreciate it. So, I do think we have uh, um, a lot of things to talk about. For a detailed analysis of a few news items, you need to tune in next week. But now we still have a lot of events to talk about for the coming week. So on Saturday, the 6th of August, you can join me and the other skeptics in Malmö when we walk with the the humanists uh, in the Malmö Pride Parade. Uh, It'll be really, really fine. It starts at uh, 3 o'clock and uh, we will be there in our best uh, uh, rainbow-colored clothes. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. It'll be fun. I'm, I'm going to be attending a pride uh, parade myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of the, the, the biggest events of that kind in the UK, uh, in Brighton, on Saturday. Oh. Yeah. So, so it's one of the biggest, really, huh? Yeah. It's like 200,000 people. Right. When, <laughs> when is this? It's on It's on Saturday. It's It's on the same day. Oh. But it's, oh, I, I believe it's in the morning. Starts at 11 o'clock or something. Um, but in the afternoon, on the same day, uh, there is um, apparently uh, the Skeptics in the Pub equivalent that is called La Razionale Alcoholica. 
in Italy, um, comes on. Uh, the name of the place where it takes place uh, sounds a bit French, which is not that much of a surprise given the fact that it's very close to the border uh, between Fran- uh, France and Italy. It's it's called uh, Rheim Notre Dame. Um, sorry if my pronunciation is absolutely terrible. But the title translated into English is Illusions and the Tricks of Perception. So, very important and exciting topic. Go along. Uh, the the organizer is the uh, Valle d'Aosta uh, chapter of CICAP, the Italian skeptics organization. A great... Uh event is happening starting on the 6th of August, the same day, um, in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland. It's Skeptics on the Fringe. Um, it'll be a several weeks event that they're kicking off with, um, uh, with the our Friends on the Fringe event. And it will appeal to all open-minded, curious scientists, geeks and skeptics. Um, so do come along. However, don't worry if you miss it, because like I said, this uh, Skeptics on the Fringe will carry on for a few uh, more days and we will talk about it now and again uh, on the show. Just to remind people that it's happening, uh, we had a little promo um, that was done by Sean Slater earlier on our show as well. And uh, we're hoping to speak about this event afterwards uh, with one of the people from uh, Edinburgh Skeptics. Cool. On Monday, the 8th of August, uh, we have in Copenhagen uh, a speech called What is the Use of History? The Role of Critical Thinking in Analyzing History with Kasper Elskildsen. I think his name is. Sounds like a good time. That's amazing. We we have a historian at the, in the Hungarian Skeptic Society, and I love the skeptical analysis of historical mm-hmm. events and and things because yeah. it it really gives you an idea how much of a scientific area history can be. Yeah, it's difficult because you know you you, you despite the common yeah you you can't do the double blinded uh, trials yeah. so uh, yeah uh, it, it's difficult but yeah, it, and, yeah and there is a really good phrase uh, that goes something like this history is written by victors and so how much of it isn't reported or isn't discussed in, in history books oh, yeah. and it's amazing um, I mean hi you know growing up in the ex-soviet union country uh that certainly showed in all our historic uh books um in school and the angle that obviously we were taught in, in terms of uh communism etc mm. yeah but there are still hard facts about history and that's that's the real skeptical angle and i like that 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 you can analyze them and you can apply a critical approach but the other thing is that the emotional side, what you just said about the victors writing history, um, is very true. And what comes with this is that all the suffering from the loser's side, from those who have been killed, who have suffered a lot, who who were tortured, and and who knows what else happened to them, those stories are not really told, or at least not in a way that that emotionally touches you, because they are just data. They are just numbers. They are just uh, distant stories instead of you really. And this is this is why I like, for example, war movies, uh, those that are based on historic historical events, because 
they tend to show you something of of the suffering and yeah i think i think to understand historical events you should really get that too and uh, this is why you remember we've praised a lot um the the video by the the australian skeptics uh the vaccination chronicles mm. yeah yeah oh absolutely yeah because you can you can show figures you can show all the numbers that prove that with vaccinations work and vaccinations don't cause problems uh or not at at, at the large scale uh it's just scattered small scale problems that that they that can occur and the benefit is so much greater than than the actual risk and you can talk about that for ages it won't get you where where a video like that showing and telling stories of all the suffering caused by those diseases can get you yeah let's put a link on, on to the, the this video in yeah. in the show notes because if you haven't seen it before for every, every skeptic and a lot of other people as well should should watch this movie it, well this film it's it's very good yeah the vaccination chronicles not to talk about the fact that i'm pretty sure that there are still a lot of languages lacking from the subtitles the list of subtitles Mm-hmm. Um, so you can make a project out of it, dear listeners, if you want to, if if you're willing to put the effort in it and some time and devote some time to it and translate the subtitles. That is a great project and it really makes sense. Yeah. Right. Uh, so on Wednesday the tenth, we have a lot of a lot of uh, events. But if we start in Sweden, uh, in Göteborg, Gothenburg. You can join the Swedish skeptics as they give you a free guided tour through the botanical gardens of uh, Gothenburg. So go to that if you have the chance. Cool. I'll quickly run through all the uh, UK-based Skeptic in the Pub gatherings on the Wednesday the 10th, because there's quite a few. We've got five. Um, (laughs) There's one in High Wycombe, um, Skeptics in the Pub Social. Come along to that one if you're in or around the area. There's one in Birmingham, um, and they'll be talking about conspiracy theories um, and then a critical introduction um, by, with Dr. Jovan Byford. Um, there is one in Bournemouth, Skeptics in the Pub. Um, the theme is Humanism for Skeptics with uh, David Warden. Uh, there is also one in Greenwich near where I live um, and they'll be talking about the psychology of alien abduction with Chris French and lastly there is one in Newcastle and there skeptics in the pub talk called sex love and marketing with David Frank oh I got all excited about this one and on the very same day the Hungarian Skeptic Society uh, starts it, its uh, three day appearance at a large festival have you ever heard about Siget Festival? No. No, not really, no. According to Wikipedia, Siget Festival is one of the largest music and cultural festivals in Europe. Yeah, it's hundreds of performances every year that, that take place. Uh, lots of stages, thousands of people. In 2015, there were 400,000 people at- attending the festival. So it's it's from ninety five different countries, so it's it's genuinely international. And uh, year after year, we uh, uh, the Hungarian Skeptic Society attends the festival 
Seagat Festival, the name Seagat means island. It takes place on an island uh, that used to be an industrial area of Budapest. And uh, there is one part of this uh, festival that is called Civil Seagat, which is for uh, NGOs and uh, and charitable organizations to to offer some services, some some kind of uh, daytime entertainment for the attendees. Because, as you would imagine, uh, with a festival of this kind, the most of the attractions happen uh, during the night with all the booze and sex and drugs and alcohol. Um, so, alrighty then. That's not the part. That's not the part that we take. That 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 we are are going for. Uh, we try to educate people, which is a uh, kind of a weird thing at a festival like that. Is the sexual education also involved, or is that no? Uh, sex, sex, sex education. No, 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 no. Um, although we have had discussions about HIV. Oh. I have met HIV deniers at Sigurd oh Festival. <laughs> that did not end up well in uh, in Africa. I remember last time uh, oh, one yeah. of the. So we have a small tent there, and uh, some of us uh, are going to be there. Um, a few of us uh, talking to people, offering some uh, some quizzes. Um, we have a few posters um, that that you can have a look at. Uh, both in English and Hungarian, so it's it's good fun. Mm. So nice. whoever listening to this um, will be there, please come along and say hi. Mm. Nice. Sounds good. We are going to be there between the 10th of August and the 12th of August, so three days. There is another event that's happening in the UK um, on the 11th of August this time round in Manchester. It's a soap box special. Um, well... Oh, interesting. So I guess you just pop along, and you can anybody can can have the microphone and, and it's an interesting uh, name. Isn't it? So so box special. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on the same day in Worthing, you can go along to uh, uh, the changing role of zoos. It's a talk by James Cretney. Thank you very much, guys. Mm-hmm. Quite a colorful week that is ahead of us. Yeah, I wish I could be uh, uh, in Edinburgh for the, yeah, for the so do Skeptics I. on the Fringe. Uh, that that, that seems to be really nice. Yeah. I think they have like 23 yeah. free speeches over a couple of weeks, and I would love wow. to see every one of them. Yeah. And Edinburgh, if you haven't been to Edinburgh, it's a lovely, beautiful place as well. Beautiful place. Mm, I haven't, so I, I want to go there. You know what? We should go together once. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'll be amazing, guys. Definitely. Yeah. Doing some interviews as well. <laughs> for now let's focus on qed in october though mm. that's our first goal first goal yeah yeah and from qed onwards we can dream on yep mm. yep okay thanks very much guys i believe what's coming up is very exciting because we recorded an interview with deborah hyde yay yay <laughs> On every other episode, we interview someone who represents a skeptical organization, group or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Today, we have here with us folklorist and cultural anthropologist Deborah Hyde. 
She writes and lectures about superstition and especially the cultural and psychological aspects of the belief in weird creatures in different societies. Also, she's editor-in-chief of the UK's formal sceptical journal, The Skeptic. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for asking me on. Well, very happy to be here. Happy to have you. Um, it's been a while that we we planned this, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so very happy to finally be here. First of all, you you can mostly be encountered on the internet under the name. Okay, I, I'll try to pronounce it well. Jordemain. That's it, Jordemain. Yeah. Uh, whose whose name was it that you uh, kind of stole? She was uh, Marjorie Jordemain was executed for treasonable um, witchcraft in fifteenth century England, and mm. she was. I, I suppose the reason I took on. An identity when I started blogging was, first of all, I write about some pretty odd things and I didn't know what kind of attention I would attract. So I did want, um, you know, I I wanted a a skin, basically. And um, as it turned out, I don't think it was particularly necessary whatever oddness has been thrown my way is within my handling capacity. But I chose her specifically because um, I'm not an academic, um, but I'm very academic-y. And she wasn't an aristocrat, but she had ideas above her station. So she liked, she was interested in, um, uh, she, she was interested in the occult. She was, and she mixed with some extremely powerful and knowledgeable people. Uh, she got herself into trouble for it. But I thought that if you were going to have somebody who was fascinated by the darker side of things, um, then she was as good a role model as any. Wow, cool. You've been lecturing about a wide range of things from from like uh, vampires, werewolves and and fairies. Mm. Uh, Do you have a favorite among those? Oh, do you know, it depends on whatever I'm reading at the time, because whenever I get into a subject, you, I, I just become so fascinated by it that I think, oh, yeah, this is how, how could anything be more interesting than this? I suppose I really yeah, I, it's very hard to say. I'm I'm into witches at the moment, so um, uh, so witches are my favourite. But I I have absolutely loved doing vampires. I've absolutely loved doing werewolves, and I would love to do the French tour of werewolf destinations one day when I get some spare time. I will, uh, because France mm. was. Um, had a lot of werewolf trials connected with witch trials. So, yeah, it's whatever I'm into. I, I think I think the one perpetual interest is human beings because we come up we come up with some funky stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they're all human in a way, right? Vampires, werewolves and fairies, they have they're more like a human projection of of human emotions and, and and needs. Yes, absolutely. They serve human needs and that's why in every culture at every time you find creatures that mythological creatures that fulfill these um these criteria because they are they're a human constant our our perceptive and cognitive apparatus is a constant and um you know cultures vary but we have we have similar needs across time and across space and so People come up with these kinds of creatures again and again and again in very slightly different forms, and they're all fascinating. And at the back of it, you've got the, the fascination of the human brain and the human experience. 
Hmm. Yeah, now now that you're、um, mentioning the human experience, based on our previous encounters, you have a lovely personality with apparently nothing dark about you. <laughs>、um, so, how did you your how how did、um, your interest in in all things dark and scary come about? <laughs> Well, first of all, that's very kind of you to say.、Um, <laughs> perhaps you don't know me so well, but、uh, <laughs> how did it come about? I think that my mother was,、um, in every, you know, in, in pretty much most respects, she was a very sensible,、uh, responsible woman. She wouldn't let me watch horror films because she was she was afraid it would, you know, warp my fragile mind, but. When I was a kid, I, I spent time with my、um, my strange aunties from the north of England, and we used to sit there in rafts of smoke because everybody smoked like chimneys, and they would talk about、um, kind of superstitious beliefs that they all actually held. So I wasn't allowed to consume horror as fiction; I was consuming it as non-fiction, and、oh. it was. It, it, it was it was frightening, but it was also、um, a really incredible dark frisson. I mean, I, I heard、mm-hmm. about you know poltergeists and、uh, ghosts and dark guides and life after death and you know so many weird, bizarre things on on a kind of you know on a folkloric basis on、um, on an on an oral basis people. Passing stories from one person to another, and I don't think that that dark frisson has ever left me. And I really, I don't want it to, because I, I'm actually not sure what I would be without it. It's really integrated itself into my personality.、Hmm. So it's in, an attraction that's been there from the very start. So、hmm. w- when did you when did you realise it was not real?、Um, that's a good question. Actually, there were two books that I wasn't allowed to read. Until I was older,、um, so as a consequence of that, they were kept on a very high shelf, and I used to have to wait till my parents went out and then get a chair and stand on the chair before I could get them and read them.、Um, one of them was about Jack the Ripper, and that isn't something that ten-year-olds should read. <laughs> and the other one was a book called The Black Arts by Richard Cavendish, and it had a very lurid kind of a sixties and seventies. Paperback cover on it. It looked, it could look like a trashy paperback, but in actual fact, what it was was he he did. A breakdown of what the religion of、um, of higher cult magic was,、uh, what the Kabbalah was in theory, what numerology was, and I I could see it for the very first time as a systematic religious system. So it wasn't real; it didn't reflect reality. But I could see it as a kind of、um, a very it was a very strange hybrid. Actually, it was. Uh, that kind of magic was developed at a time that there wasn't really ve- such a clean distinction between magic and science,、hmm. and in fact, many early scientists confused what we would now see as completely obviously separate strands.、Um, so that started me thinking about why people believe strange things、uh, in a more systematic way. It was only the start, but.、Um, I, I suppose I was I was in my early teens, and and from then on, I just I just read an awful lot. And when you like reading history, as I do,、um, and you combine that with a bit of anthropology and sociology, I was very fond for a while of、um, an American、uh, anthropologist or cultural anthropologist called Marvin Marvin Harris, and he.、Uh, 
approached culture from an economic point of view. Uh, it was it was very much a sort of a Marxist analysis, I suppose, about the economics of why cows were sacred in India, for example. Mm-hmm. And it was mm. um, it, it was really really fascinating stuff. And uh, so. I suppose, yeah, it started when I was in my early teens and really by my mid-twenties, I was an atheist, but I was um, I was still fascinated by why people come up with bizarre beliefs, hmm. including some bizarre beliefs that are incredibly respectable as well. I think we really do assume that religion's respectable and superstition's silly. Ah, that's right. Can you name um, an example of what you had in mind when, when you talked about the respectable kind of belief? Uh, in my vampire lecture, I we talk about why we think that vampires imbibe blood and the mm-hmm. significance of blood. Why why would why would vampires do that instead of you know chop your ear off and eat that or um, take a square foot of skin off and eat that? So why 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 do these creatures? Why do vampires actually target blood? And then I talk about just. Isn't that absolutely bizarre? Why on earth would somebody think that they could imbibe the essence, the very energy of something mm-hmm. through the blood of it? Who on earth came up with such a peculiar idea? Mm-hmm. And then the next still is of communion. There are millions of perfectly respectable Christians do it every every day. And um, whether you believe that uh, the communion wine is actually the blood of Christ or whether you believe that it is um, an allegory, and it depends which kind of Christian you are as as to which of those two you believe, um, then nonetheless, it's, it's apparent to many perfectly normal people what the significance of blood is in regularly you know in, in a sort of regularly endorsed religious environment and yet they would think it's extremely odd that somebody would get fetishistic about blood or that people would believe in vampires yeah but your lectures let it be about vampires fairies mm-hmm. whatever you talk about they are extremely interesting and are fascinatingly well researched yet they span across different cultures hmm. because sometimes you you mention um uh, the the cultural background of such beliefs in uh Transylvania in in Germany in France um just like um you you mentioned before um do you sometimes struggle to find proper sources for for your research uh for, especially from foreign countries do you do you read in other languages as well no i don't you know if- That's actually a, a real source of frustration for me, and um, yeah, th- that is that is really annoying. And I also, when I started out doing this, I, I read a guy called Montague Summers, um, at, who now I find hilarious. I mean, he's he's kind of he's not a primary source you'd actually use, but he is a very compelling, bizarre character. And um, of course, when you read old-fashioned books, they do give you French and Latin without a translation because. It's reckoned that anybody. It was reckoned that anybody who was sufficiently educated to be reading such an erudite book would have it as a second language. Um, <laughs> but Montague Summers also just gives, you know, just provides Nor- Nordic languages, Icelandic, and that sort of thing, uh, without a translation as well. Which was, um, I'm, sh- I think he was showing off actually. Uh, um, <laughs> so, um, uh, fortunately, he's you know he's 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 to read as entertainment rather than a 
uh, decent secondary source because he embroiders everything too much. Uh, but you'll, you'll, yeah, I mean, I, I could I could do with a second language. I'm just with reading all the vampire books. I don't have time to acquire one. Mm. What What is your professional background, and did your formal education? involve anything about what you now research and lecture about? No, my formal education was um, in was in science. And I should have known that uh, that just crashed and burned. That was such a bad decision for me. And I should have known because when I should have been re revising for my physics and chemistry, I was um, I was uh, I was putting it off by reading history. I was reading medieval history, so <laughs> I would I would be procrastinating with a medieval history book, and then I think, oh, after this, I'll I'll get on to, you know, whatever it was, and, and I never did. You know, I came out, just got to my science exams, um, knowing an awful lot about the Wars of the Roses, and uh, <laughs> so my my formal education went off piste. And um, mm. from there on, it had to be informal education to get back to the subjects that I that I really really loved. It took a while to find them as well. To find, you know, you know, I didn't know about cultural anthropology when I was until I was sort of into my twenties, really, or early twenties, anyway. Um, so professionally, uh, I, um, uh, I I describe myself as a money juggler. Uh, I'm a production manager and and coordinator and general sort of logistics sort of person now i work in the film industry i started out working in collectibles with um uh, you know books and comics and art prints and things like that uh but i got into the movie industry oof, probably more than 15 years ago now and i started in uh, creature and makeup effects which again brought me face to face with horrific things fortunately because uh, I like that sort of thing. Um, and at the moment, I'm working in set construction. So, uh, you know, I, I sort of, I, I work out, I work out money, I work out cash flow, um, paying people, doing contracts, that sort of thing. Can, can you mention a few, uh, some of the films you've been uh, participating in or working on? Probably the one, uh, probably the ones that are highest profile that, that you'd recognise would be, um, I worked on I worked on the Brothers Grimm, Terry Gilliam's The Brothers Grimm, which is fantastic mm -hmm. because I've been such a big Gilliam yeah. fan for years. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> he's absolutely amazing. And I was on there, uh, with that, I was uh, making a horse costume and uh, I did various things, but what I ended up doing mainly was making this this horse costume. And I remember going over, it was shot in um, Barandoff Studios in Prague in the Czech Republic. And... I went over there carrying a horse costume and I got through customs and I only spoke English and the guy at customs only spoke Czech and I had to open up this great big box and, you know, he looked at it. It wasn't self-evident what it was. I mean, who, who carries horse clothes across international borders? And then... Um, so, and I was trying, and I didn't know the words for either horse or costume in Czech. So we were at a complete impasse. And, and I said to him, Barandov, and he looked kind of half amused, half disgusted at me and just waved me through. <laughs> <laughs> of course, if it was for Barandov, it was going to be bizarre and it was going to be silly. So, um, so that was fine. And then in the event... Uh, they were a bit short of an actress. So do you remember um, in, in the Brothers Grimm that there was a very beautiful queen 
who lived in a tower. Yeah. yeah. Right. That wasn't me. <laughs> Do you remember that there was a really ugly, smelly old version of her that was 500, year olds le- 500 years later? Yep, yep. That was me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I get on, on the wrong side of the camera from time to time, too. Yeah, at least you didn't have to play the horse. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, no. no I, just got, I just got nearly run down by the horse, the ungrateful creature. Okay. Um you, you you mentioned a few um a few things about your background um with your aunties uh yeah. and you even mentioned poltergeists yeah but you did get involved in a very prominent poltergeist case yeah. in the UK which was the Anfield poltergeist case yeah. what was that about well really that was a situation that found me rather than the other way around. Uh, I, to start with, I don't believe in poltergeists. So if you don't, they, no, no. <laughs> so they needed a skeptic. <laughs> um, it was actually Professor Chris French that uh, um, put them onto me because the woman who was at the centre of the poltergeist activity, a woman called Janet. Um, said that she was going to give it was a very peculiar it was a very rare interview because she doesn't often go on camera to discuss what happened mm-hmm. um but she was unusually she was going to appear on the television and for balance they wanted someone who didn't um believe in poltergeists but they wanted but they did mention to me beforehand that she was uh, you know, she she wasn't pub- she's not a publicity seeking person, and she was quite nervous about the thought of being on television, and so they didn't want somebody to kind of tackle her particularly directly or aggressively on on screen, and so I agreed that okay, that's fine. I'd just talk around the subject, <laughs> and um, I've regretted it ever since because I think that the whole thing could have done with being tackled head on, and frankly. Now, my attitude would be, if you're going to be on the telly, be prepared for somebody to be frank with you. Um, I, I, I think that, I, you know, I think in, in trying to talk around that subject that um, I don't think that the interview, I don't think the piece was very good. I don't think that there was a lot of information in it mm-hmm. for people who didn't know the specifics about the Enfield case. Uh, like I say, it's it's not it's not like I've done my own original investigations or anything like that. There were people there at the time who did that who didn't believe in it and who thought that the girls were playing up. Um, but, I've, I've you know, it, it, people have asked me about it since. I wrote a piece for The Guardian. Um, so I think... You know, it's, it's it's a shame, really, that it's still part of Janet's identity because she uh, she has a family. She seems to be a very nice, you know, amenable person. She she's got a life. If she could kind of leave that part of her life behind, that would that would be nice for her. I think. Um, I can't. I certainly can't see what she gets out of still talking about it. So so um, you do feel that uh, she's genuine about believing. The whole thing was real? I have no idea. What I do know was that she was at a very tender age when all of this happened. And that when somebody is, when somebody's under 18, they're not legally culpable. You can't make, you're not allowed to make contracts. You're not allowed to sign a contract, uh, to sign a mortgage or get a credit card or whatever. And that's for very good reason. I, um, she, she was very young. She was, she was pubescent. In fact, there was a, a 
great deal of talk at the time about it was it was sort of you know the beginning of her periods the beginning of her physical maturity mm-hmm. and so when she uh, so i i don't know i know that um, memories can be malformed and certainly when you're younger that's probably easier um so i i would say i have i i, I can't know what go- is going on in her mind I don't believe that there was a poltergeist there for a moment. I think that she and her sister were mucking around and um, a couple of people mm-hmm. who investigated it for their own reasons ended up believing in it and being, frankly, rather gullible. Mm-hmm. By the way, you did mention that uh, probably the reason why um, Chris French recommended you um, was your personality, that your approach, that you were, you will not collide with them head on. And I I have listened to a few of your uh, your um, tele- television appearances. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, that's, that is that is a very nice approach that you are um, actually applying there. Uh, you're, you're not trying to alienate anyone. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can and I do from time to time. It's just uh, just that I, I don't you know, I'm a great, I'm a great believer in don't be a dick. And, um, yeah, I think that really most of the time when you're debating, you're not trying to convert the person that you're debating with because th- their mind will be pretty much as unchangeable as, you know, I'm, nobody's going to convince me poltergeists exist, um, unless there's direct evidence. So, um, really what you're doing is you're speaking to the audience that are listening and, they are less likely to listen to the substance of what you you say if you're being a dick. So that's generally mm. why. And, and also, I'm, I am truly, truly aware that people can believe in strange things without being stupid. Mm. Uh, you know, I think I think it's the silliest mistake if a skeptic ever makes it to just assume someone's dumb because they believe in something bizarre. Yeah. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, in in general, I just I just think it's a better way of behaving. Um, it doesn't mean I'm not capable of being a bit more adversarial, uh, <laughs> but it's it you know it's less useful. So so how did you exactly get involved with the skeptics movement, and specifically, how did you get involved with the skeptic magazine? I got involved in the skeptics movement because I was chair of the Central London Humanist Group in London, and. They, <laughs> so I was meeting all these really nice people and they kept talking about skeptics in the pub. And there's only so many times you can hear it before you start thinking, oh, that sounds good. I'll go to that mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I went to my first meeting at Skeptics in the Pub. And um, on that first night, I met Sid Rodriguez, Chris French and um, Norman, who uh, does all their tech for them. And I was... Uh, you know, I'm still Facebook friends with all of them. They're really nice people. I was very welcome, made very welcome. Um, funny enough, that night there was a bomb scare at the pub and we all got turfed out early. So I didn't actually have much of a skeptics in the pub evening, but I thought that was good. I'll come back next month. So I did. And it, it's extremely welcoming, um, very friendly. Uh, you, you can just, you know, you can just turn up not knowing anyone and you'll end the evening with a few friends so that was how i i got involved in skepticism Mm -hmm. shortly after that then um the simon singh thing happened and with the british chiropractic association and it really galvanized the whole scene it galvanized all of the people involved and so it was very um it was very interesting time to be involved and it it was i think it made us all feel that 
it actually mattered. This wasn't just us amusing ourselves once a month in a pub. This that we were engaging with subjects that actually mattered. People being attempts being made to shut people up by legal means, um, or ten twenty three with the homeopathy campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, it 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 was it was something that actually extended to the outside world. Things that mattered. So that was appealing. And, and how did you exactly become uh, the driving force behind the the Skeptic magazine? Well, Chris, it, it, it had some marvelous editors before, and the the um, editor prior to me was was Chris French, and uh, he'd done a brilliant job. Um, but he had served for a very long time, and and he really deserved a break. So when he decided he was going to step down, uh, I think I was, you know, the, um, I was the person who underestimated the amount of work. Uh, most fatally, and therefore um, ended up with the job, and <laughs> uh, uh, and it's been fantastic. I've really, really enjoyed it. I've, it it's been it, it is a lot of work, but it's an excuse to talk to some absolutely brilliant people and to go through some fantastic material. I mean, what what people do out of their own interest the things that they find and how well they write and what they put together is um is amazing and i really really enjoy it so so it's basically because of you getting involved with the skeptics in the pub that yes. that you got into the the skeptic as well that's it yeah i was mm -hmm. basically i was i was kind of like i guess i was um one of one of the candidates one of a pool of candidates and and we all you know we'd all know each other socially and everything uh And, and in fact, in scepticism, as you know, even across across international borders, skeptics tend to know each other, and tend to talk to each other, and and network, and you know, share share work and share workloads. And we have Yelena. Yes, joining I'm us. here. I'm yeah. here. I'm joining everyone. Um, <laughs> I was late. I was late. <laughs> um, Welcome to the yes, show. Thank you, guys. It's really yeah. nice to be uh, with you all <laughs> and doing this um, interview. So I'll jump right in and ask questions, if that's okay. <laughs> that sounds great. Excellent. Um, so I've got a question about the Orkham Awards. Um, mm -hmm. As far as we know, uh, it, it is actually thanks to you that uh, the award have been offered every year since 2012. Mm -hmm. um, would you tell us what is the award all about and how did you come up with the idea? It was one of it was one of the first things I did after I started editing the magazine. I thought, first of all, we have an absolutely brilliant sceptical convention every year in this country, uh, QED, which is held in Manchester. And Yay. Um, it's, uh, yes, for anybody who's attended it, you, um, you can endorse it and say how, how brilliant it is. It's really Uh, you know, those guys do such a good job and it's very, very enjoyable. And I thought, well, what uh, about because the magazine has been going for long, for so long, the magazine could be in a position to actually give awards out. And I know that in scepticism, people do such good work. I mean, people people give loads of time and um, uh, and their expertise. And as I've said before it's to do with real world things that actually really matter education about vaccines education about homeopathy that sort of thing so i thought well wouldn't it be nice if people just got a bit of recognition for the work that they do 
for free. Um, and I hope very much that people, even when they don't win, that the fact that they've been nominated, I, I hope very much that they feel that that's kind of, you know, that it's a gong, that it's appreciation from the community for the work that they've done. And um, so I had a meeting with, uh, with, with Chris and with Richard Wiseman, funny enough. We all sat down and we had a coffee. And that was how it started. And ever since then, it's been hosted by QED every year. And it has been emceed by Richard Wiseman. Mm. And he's, he does a fantastic job. He really, really <laughs> keeps the room very, very happy. Uh, and it's become a tradition at QED that everybody makes uh, everybody makes a chicken out of their napkin. So <laughs> that's, yeah. that's an Occam's thing. And I just hope that we've been able to um, to help raise the profile of some really, really deserving work. So, so is this award only for, for English-speaking activists or is it open for, for anybody? I, I say that it's to do with the English scene. So mm -hmm. um, but it has been won by people who've been based in other countries. It's just as long as it relates somehow to the, to the English scene. So if it's uh, a blog which is very heavily read, um, that, would, that would tend to be in English, obviously, um, or, or uh, the activism that, you know, relates to something that happens in the UK, not England, actually, in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't rule out people from other countries at all. It's just that if it kind of figures on the radar, I suppose, of, um, of UK scepticism. Yeah, that's clear. Um, you mentioned the, the magazine being behind the Occam Awards. Mm -hmm. How long has the magazine itself been around? And, and is there an, an actual organization behind the magazine itself? It's kind of, yes, it is. There's a brilliant guy called Mike Hutchinson yeah. who has helped with the magazine uh, since, well, for ages and ages now. It was founded by Wendy um, Grossman mm -hmm. and various people have come in and edited it and some, on, on some cases gone away, retired and then come back again. Um, so there are several people involved. I'm, I'm at the point now where um, I'm going to get, you know, sort of formalise the whole constitution and everything. But basically, it, it's been a matter of whoever's been most enthusiastic at the time keeping it going. And I'm going to get in trouble now because I can't remember the precise number of years that it's been going for. But it's an awfully long time. It's more than 20 years. I know that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was started really by Wendy um, and yeah she's been back to edit it more than once uh, so we'll we'll have to get it on a yeah we'll have to get it on a more formal grounding now but it has been going continually for a very very long time. So what are your thoughts on the current state of uh, international uh, collaborations and what potential projects and collaborative actions do you see kind of in the future for the skeptics? I see really scepticism as a pool of potential. I saw this when um, we when, when we had the the very sort of vibrant scene in London in London in the UK actually uh, when Simon Singh had his case with um, the British Chiropractic Association, and you, you can see it with ten twenty three. I I I see scepticism as um, a, a group of people who will come together and form around something as soon as it becomes apparent. Uh, for example, Mark Tilbrook was giving out 
information leaflets outside um, a theatrical performance of a, of a high-profile psychic mm -hmm. that we have over here. And he unfortunately was, was quite badly verbally abused um, by this person's attendants. And, uh, you, you know, that, that there were a lot of people came together to... Um, to make that a, a high-profile thing and to give him a lot of support. So being with sceptics is like herding cats. But I, I think that we are extremely coordinated and resourceful when we want to be. Um, and, and so we're really a force uh, waiting for a cause. And the causes come up all the time. And as you rightly pointed out, of course, we're associated with, uh, you know, with free thinkers and um, uh, religious issues. Uh, there was the atheist bus campaign was was taken up. It started out as, as an atheist thing and um, from Marianne Shireen, supported by the Richard Dawkins Foundation. But it was but she was sort of she was warmed, you know, she, she was taken into the bosom of scepticism. So, uh, you know, I think we're massive potential waiting to be deployed on whatever situation comes up. So, so looking into the future, what, what's the next topic you will you're working on or you will be working on? I think the the Krampus was the last one. Oh yes, I did Krampus. I, I did um, every Christmas time. I, I do a couple of Krampus talks because uh, Krampus is just such a cool character. He's kind of like a, a pre-Christmas demon, um, and I always like to um, I always like to, uh, to remind. Christians that um, Christmas doesn't or hasn't always belonged to them. Uh, at the moment, what I'm working on is, is something slightly sideways. I'm, I'm working on. If you're interested in, in superstition, you're interested in religion too. I don't. I don't. As I've said before, I don't really draw such a distinction between the two of them. And at the moment, I'm interested in um, a 15th-century mystic called Marjorie Kemp. I'm trying to work out whether she was mad, had a personality disorder, or uh, just a vile personality, um, or a combination of all three. Uh, so this sort of this medieval mystic religiosity that she experienced uh, is is interesting if you're going to be talking about things like temporal lobe epilepsy and that sort of thing, the kind of things that as skeptics we we get into, uh, we're interested in for why people have anomalous experiences um so that's kind of that that's my area of history i do like the medieval period in england specifically but in, in europe a little as well uh so don't know how long that will last for i did start making podcasts at one point but they, they take a long time to produce and i've got a load of them half produced mm. so I would really like to start putting those out again. I did one on the vampires of Rhode Island a few years ago, and um, people seem to enjoy that. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, I just can I just quickly say, say something? You know yeah. how you said you're interested in medieval history. Well, I yeah. never thought I was until like I saw a couple of your talks, and you just presented so um, you're very excited about the subject and you know, everything you talk about, like the fairies and uh, where the beliefs actually come from and the history of it all, that I think I'm also interested in now. <laughs> so it comes across very well and it kind of gets you involved and sort of sucked into whole sort of, so where is it all coming from, you know? Yeah. Um, and how people used to live and how they sort of got around and how they made 
world to make sense, you know, through various yeah. rituals. And, and it's it's great. I, I really love your talks. Um, well, thank you very much. Um, that, it's really always really, really nice to get some uh, that kind of feedback from people. And it's, it's also a passion of mine. So it's wonderful if I do manage to communicate that passion instead of effectively talking to myself. Uh, the, <laughs> what I did at, um, at that conference, the conference that we met at, was I think I did how um, what ended up being the legal infrastructure for witch trials and for belief in witchcraft started out as attempts to control heresy. So it was it was kind of it was an ecclesiastical and very um, uh, you know corporate kind of an approach to try and well, to try and control what people thought and what they said, and it ended up in witch trials. And and um, so that was that very firmly medieval history. And that there's your connection to religion as well. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, absolutely. And to the Inquisition. Yes. I guess. Yes. And please, please do uh, f f try to finish those podcasts. I would be yeah. very, so very would interested I. Yeah, to see them. Be exciting. And hundreds and thousands of other people as well. <laughs> <laughs> <I've> got, yeah, <laughs> not just three of us. <laughs> I'm doing one about Marjorie Jordemain herself mm -hmm. because she was interesting, mm -hmm. uh, being obviously being uh, being a, a lower class woman who managed to ensconce herself in high society and somehow working among the the kind of finest ecclesiastic magicians of her day. That's an interesting path from a woman's point of view. Um, I've got one about werewolves, um, where uh, we recreate one of the earliest werewolf trials that I know of, um, European werewolf trials. And um, what's another one? Would it... Oh, yes, last year I went to, uh, to Serbia for work and managed to find the grave of one of the two absolutely classic vampire cases. Oh, wow. Um, Peter Plajogovic. Um, they they did actually teach me how to pronounce his name properly. <laughs> and, and that's a very anglicised version. But, um, yeah, so I just, I, I mean, that was, it was probably really sad, actually, but that was one of the high points of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Tramping around in a Serbian graveyard. Oh, wow. <laughs> By the way, the problems that you mentioned with uh, the the production are, are those because of uh, lack of uh, resources or time on on your your end, or so would it be would it make sense to to give a shout out to anyone who can help you with it? Oh, that's very kind. Really, the the difficulty the the bottleneck is always my time. Oh, it's your time. Okay. When it comes to these kinds of stories and these pursuits, I, I have eyes bigger than my belly, so <laughs> I'm always on to <laughs> uh, whatever I can do next. And it's just it's literally the time to sit down and pick up a bit of extra footage and to okay. edit it all together. Okay. Um, but I, mm. I promise I'll, I'll get something done this year. <laughs> get one of them done this year and put it in. Great. Cool. Looking Great. forward to it. So you, you're, you're basically doing it all on your own? Yeah. Okay. And when you, when you're doing the research, do you um, sometimes team up with uh, other researchers like uh, psychologists? Um, there, uh, there's uh, Chris French we we've mentioned a few times. Yeah. Um, do you do you team up with others sometimes, or you basically do your your research on your own? Um, I basically do it by myself, but I would like to team up with um, somebody for the case of Marjorie Kemp because. Uh, she needs. She needs. I, I need. A, I need psychiatrists and psychologists. Mm -hmm. Really, mm -hmm. 
so I will be finding those. I will be finding some psychiatrists and psychologists who uh, could manage to deal with um, a fifteenth-century woman. I'll have to work out their methodology because it's got to be it's got to be somewhat blind. But it's very difficult to do it completely blind because if you give well, you've got to give information about this woman's life, but in a modern context, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, so, but I would like to work with some psychiatrists on the issue of Marjorie Kemp. Would it? Would there be any kind of uh, possibility for forensic uh, analyses, or just do you do we know where she is, or, or where she's buried, or? No, I don't. I, do you know? I don't think we do. Um, I'm not sure about that, actually. I know I know more about her life than I do about her death, but okay. uh, yeah, that would be that would be interesting to see if she could be every bit as sanctimonious in death as she was in life. It's unbelievable how fascinating these these stories can be, hmm. and you make it obvious <laughs> that these are fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> about something that one d doesn't even think about normally. Uh, that's that's brilliant. So, uh, can you tell us quickly where people can follow your activities, news, what's going on? Yes, um, please. Do, I have a Facebook page, and please do follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jordemain. You can find my website very easily. It's um, deborahide.com or jordemain.com. Basically, if you put either of those terms in, I'll turn up pretty much at the top of a Google search. So you'll be able to track me down. And please do keep in contact. I love talking to people on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. It's been very, very much of a pleasure uh, having you on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm afraid this this was all we had time for. Okay. Deborah Hyde. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. And looking forward to seeing and hearing you somewhere around the UK sometime soon. Okay. All right. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. We've waited so long for this interview. Yeah. Deborah has been on our list for a long time. too. I think Deborah has been on our list since the inception of this podcast. In yeah. Last oh, yeah. Year, yeah. If I'm remembering sure. correctly. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. If anyone listening to this hasn't heard Deborah Hyde speak, just try to find a place to, to listen to her talk. Because the the topics themselves are amazing, and how she interprets them uh, is is probably even more amazing. So yeah, go along and do it. But I think this is this is it. We had time for this week. Thanks very much for joining me today, Yelena and Pontus. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We'll be convening again next week. Yes. So let's on. do that. <laughs> yeah. So until then, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. 
All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Robb and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Ablasha! What? Köszöntajt! Miről beszéltek? Hagyjatok már abba. Let me do the introduction, please. Okay. Silence! I'll kill you! Guys, do you follow Not Right in the Head on Facebook? What? It's called I'm Not Right in the Head. Oh, you're not right in the head. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Any news? <laughs> called, ah, not you cheeky right bastard. I know what you did there. I understand. I was too slow. I was too slow. I see what you did. Okay. Hi. <laughs> I heard a cat. Please, <laughs> please say hi to Hitch. <laughs> I, the, the door is goddamn door is even closed, but you can still hear him. Yeah. Well, Hitch cannot be stopped by a wall or a door. That's very adorable. <clears throat> okay. Enfield poltergeist case. Mm-hmm. Poltergeist. Enfield pol. I, I I cannot say poltergeist.